Hello and welcome to Stories from the Ridge, a podcast series of the Macaulay School. I'm Lee Burns, Head of School, and today I'm joined by Assistant Head of School Kenny Scholl and Dean of Faculty and Curriculum Sumner Macaulay. And we're here to talk about the recent series of podcasts we produced on the eight academic departments at Macaulay. I hope you've had a chance to listen to some, if not all, of them. I think they are powerful statements of who we are at Macaulay and the quality of our faculty. We've received good comments from many of you about them and thought it would be good for those of us in the administration to share our thoughts and perspective. You know, at any school, particularly a boys' school, and particularly a school that takes a holistic approach to boys' education, academic, athletic, spiritual, emotional, we sometimes tend to concentrate on the more obvious parts of our programs. But what happens in the classroom is really at the heart of what happens at Macaulay. And that's why I think this series of podcasts on our academic departments is so important and insightful. So Kenny and Sumner, thanks for joining me in this discussion. Happy to be here. Very exciting. Enjoyed it. I'll start by throwing up a few descriptive words. I asked several folks who listen to the podcast to share with me what themes they saw throughout the podcast, and here are a few that they shared. They all commented on the passion of our teachers. It's obvious that our teachers love their chosen professions and feel very passionately about them. They commented on this concept of citizenship, how that concept is taught throughout the disciplines. You think citizenship should be taught in history classes, and of course it is. But Macaulay, it's taught in all disciplines, such as science, the arts, and languages. Citizenship is not just about our own community. It's about the world. In fact, a lot of discussions centered on the concept of how we try to prepare our students to make a positive difference as citizens of a diverse and dynamic global community. They commented on how obvious it is that teachers really care about their students, not in an abstract sense, but in a real individualized way. And that's been a consistent theme throughout Macaulay's history, how our students are so connected to and so cared for by our teachers in such close relationship with them. They want every single student at Macaulay to succeed. As one of them said, I want the boys to know that I'm on their side. And finally, it's obvious that our teachers like each other. They get along and support each other. There's a real collegial atmosphere, and they see each other as collaborative teachers, not in some kind of competition. I think that's a critical aspect of our school's success and character. So those are some initial uh, impressions. Sumner's Dean of Faculty and Curriculum, you served as host of these podcasts, and you did a great job of carrying the discussion. What are your takeaways? I think what you described came through loud and clear. It's that sense of passion that students have and the teachers have for what's going on in the classroom. It's the care the, the teachers have for the individual students who are there as people. One of the things that, that surprised me that came through loud and clear that I don't know that I had necessarily expected, we've worked on, but I hadn't expected, was the sense of how these teachers are very critically thinking through how to prepare these students for the, the larger world, not just the random skills they need to have, but what they're actually going to do in that world. Um, the specific way in which they're going to bring those skills and ideas under a moral framework to make a difference. That sense of depth of working with students, of knowing how to make them relevant, how to make them see themselves as relevant, is a pretty remarkable thing that was, was loud and clear through every single department. And, you know, we, you mentioned the word framework, and I think some of the really important work we've done in the last few years with our curriculum, with our faculty, relates to developing the 14 habits of mind. Mm-hmm. So we have a, that framework and that structure. We identified what, the, what are those knowledge and skills and habits and mindsets and how we connect that to the real world. Can you say a word or two about our 14 habits of mind in that framework? Yeah, so that, that's been an interesting thing for the past five or six years, actually, is starting with trustees and faculty and students and alums saying what is needed in the larger world. What types of skills and questions and ways of going about thinking about what they're doing in front of them do they need to have, have clear? And from that emerge these 14 habits of mind. And they're very clear definitions. They're not just statements of, hey, critical thinking is important or collaboration is important. And so that therefore we've got to do some of that in our classes. It's much more about the way in which critical thinking causes you to approach a problem, the way in which collaboration allows you to see strengths of other people. It's not just getting together. It's how do I do that in a way that brings the best out of everyone that's in that group? That's the collaboration we're talking about. And so with these 14 habits in mind, with faculty thinking about them, planning their classes even with those in mind, not trying to do it all. I mean, every class is going to be different. Every class is going to have a different level of each of those. The time the guys go through that 
seven years or four years or two years, wherever the student happens to be here, that they've encountered these approaches to the academic world that, that allow them to, to do interesting things in their lives that are, that are positive, supportive things. Kenny, what about you? You've been here as our assistant head and for many years and have seen a lot of, a lot of things. And what are your takeaways from these uh, podcasts that you listen to? Well, very encouraging uh, to start with because one of the things we try to do here is make the point uh, that we teach boys, not necessarily English or math. Certainly content's important. The boys, as, as we say, need to know how to do stuff. They need to know stuff. But more importantly, and what came through in the podcast, is that the curriculum and the content exists to teach the boys, not vice versa. So we have young teachers coming to us who love their subject area, but then realize very quickly after a couple of years, it's more about the boys than it is the content. And if you think about history, you can't possibly teach history the way we used to because it, it you know, it, it's growing at, a, at a, an incredible rate every day. So you can't cover it all. So you have to think more about the boys and how they learn and what, we kind of say in a tongue-in-cheek way here is that's teaching with a capital T, not just how to solve an equation, but how what you learn from that is is really what we're about, and that what's so reassuring when when I listen to the podcast. You know, um, we've got a range of teachers who many teachers have been here for 20, 30, 40 years even, and then some t- mid-career teachers and some young teachers. And I want to play a clip from one of our younger teachers, Will Givens, who teaches graphic arts and photography. And he talks about what he's learned from the veteran teachers here and the mentoring program and how that's shaped, even caused him to rethink his approach to his teaching. Let's listen to that. Teaching, there was this there was this English teacher who I just constantly heard guys talking about. They would talk about him in the dorms. They would talk about him during my class. They would talk about him on the, you know, on the bus to mountain biking practice. And so finally I saw him in the dining hall. I said, do you know that everyone talks about you? And I mean, is it, is it that you're showing movies in class? Or are you bringing snacks? Like, how do these guys just love you? And he said, well, the way that I see it, teaching English, I'm teaching a boy to communicate his ideas. And a boy should never be bored with his own ideas. And so if I find that a boy is bored in my class, it must be that in some way I have failed to create an opportunity where he can bring his passions to bear on that project. Mm. And from the point of that conversation, I completely redid the syllabus and came up with new projects to try to find ways that a boy could bring what he does care about to a class that maybe he only signed up for because he has to complete these art elective requirements. Well, before we talk about this clip, one thing you may have noticed is the difference in the sound of the audio from when Will Givens was talking in our conversation today. We're actually today recording in a new podcast studio in the back of the chapel that Brandon Roberts um, developed for us and so you may, you're not hearing the, maybe the sirens and things and so forth you might have heard in the middle of sevens. Our rooms. So we're very fortunate to have this uh, podcast space. And podcasts are a really important part of our communication strategy of sharing all the great things that are happening at Macaulay. Well, Kenny, that was a clip, uh, a new faculty member talking about how he seeks out advice from more veteran teachers. It opens up a lot of conversation. We could talk about how we recruit and train new teachers, how we have an elaborate mentoring program, one that's both formal and informal how we work to retain great faculty through fac- through salaries and housing and professional development and so forth. But share with us, if, if you would, your thoughts on how we develop teachers. As you can hear from Will's clip, uh, it starts with bringing in the right teachers, teachers with a heart and, uh, and a soul and, 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 and an eye for what teaching is all about. And what we, what we, do when we're interviewing young teachers is we visualize that person in a classroom and and we actually try to gauge how the boys will react to that person. It's not delivery of content. It's not any of that. It's about, okay, is this, does this person have the kind of heart and soul that can be formed? And we are very fortunate to have wonderful mentors. We have a mentor program that partners te- young teachers with, uh, with, with senior teachers and not necessarily even in the same discipline. 
And so that, that plays a huge role. We have groups of teachers that meet regularly throughout the year to discuss issues of teaching and, and school life and things like that. So we have all those things in place. But we also try to, to set up ways where the teachers bump into each other, as you, if you will, and they talk about teaching and learning. And it's amazing when, you, when you're around our teachers at lunch or wherever they may be, they are talking about teaching and learning and they're sharing things that worked and didn't work. And, and, and kind of supporting all of that is Macaulay's a place, as we often say, where it's safe to take risks. Teachers try things that may not work and they're, they're eager to tell others that didn't work too well. And so we learn from each other. But for us, when we bring a new teacher in, what we try to do is create a workload that is manageable, uh, I like to I like to say, and others along with me, that we try to create a workload where the teacher can have an uncluttered mind to be where he or she really is, focused on the work at hand, what, whatever that may be at that particular moment. Uh, we try to find pieces of the day where the teacher's passions can be uh, tapped into, touched on. Uh, could be an afternoon activity, could be a club, anything like that. Um, and then we we have, as we know, as you may or may not know, we're building. Uh, new townhomes for our faculty uh, on campus. Uh, our our compensation system, without getting too much into detail, uh, recognizes what teachers do. We don't bring folks in, give them a salary, and then throw a bunch of duties in that they don't want to do. They get to play an active part in what they do here. So as a result, I think teachers come, they stay. It's a wonderful place to work. We have wonderful boys, and, and we have all kinds of ways to support them from facilities all the way down. You know, and when we do have to hire a new faculty member, and of course, there's very little turnover very at Macaulay. Little, that's right. But we added a dean of faculty recruitment position several years ago. So we run national searches and have a very, very thorough um, vetting process. And it's so important to find teachers who are mission fit, not just who are expert in their fields. Certainly they are. But I like to know, though, why does someone want to teach? And why teach at a boys' school? Why teach at Macaulay? And make sure there's that really alignment with our values and philosophy with sort of who they are you know as a person and we really are fortunate to have an outstanding faculty and staff and we do a lot of training with them and Sumner does a lot of that through faculty meetings and other opportunities to grow and Sumner can you talk a little bit about uh, how we grow our faculty yeah so it's been great to pick up with the newest faculty Um, I meet with them uh, every other week on a Tuesday morning and we think about how we're going to both introduce the school culture. They need to understand Macaulay deeply. They need to understand sort of who we are, what a boys' school is like, um, who these young men are. We're trying to get them to be. But it's not just about the culture. It's not just about the logistics. Um, this morning, for instance, when we met, we were talking about had them create a spectrum, and they put we called it killing Aristotle. The idea that you have these extremes in teaching. So let's talk about a statement that says the classroom is all about enthusiasm, and the facts will come later. That's an interesting approach to teaching. So what would your classroom look like if it was just about enthusiasm? And what would your classroom look like if it were just about facts? And then think about, and then they sit down and think through that. They they describe it. And then think about where you want to be on that spectrum. Um, We do a lot of discussions with the Joseph Lohman model, which is this idea of intellectual curiosity graphed against, maybe that's on the y-axis, graphed against interpersonal relationships. And to have faculty think to themselves I have natural strengths, I have natural talents, I have natural inclinations. So I want to keep developing those along that axis, but I need to begin to think about the other axis if, if that's not where my strength is. And how would I do that? Sort of this up and to the right model. We talk to department heads, thinking about individual faculty members in the department. How can we help support them in their goals? And then the faculty, once they move past that mentee year, that second, first year, in the second year, they move into a reflection cycle. And every four years from then on, they go through a fairly in-depth thought process reflecting on what they're doing in their classrooms. That relates to the habits of mind. Which ones am I focused on? Which ones am I trying to work on? It relates to personal reflections and professional reflections, and it relates to sort of this arc in their classes that they want to, they want to cover. And, and that allows them, and then it relates actually to excellence in teaching, specifically related to the course feedback that we ask students to give. So there's a great deal of background source of material coming into them that they need to think about and process and decide this is what I'm trying to do with my students. Um, that seems to work pretty well. You know, Will Givens had another great quote I want to share. He speaks about the teaching profession in a way that reflects, I think, the entire faculty and not just the fine arts faculty. 
Sometimes art teachers can have this sense about them of, I'm an artist who has to teach, you know, because uh-huh. because I yeah. couldn't yeah. I couldn't make it as an artist. Yeah. Or the arts can't can't provide, and so I, I begrudgingly teach these classes. But that is not the spirit of the arts at Macaulay. And for all of us, I know for myself, it is not that I'm an artist who has to teach. I get to teach, and, and teaching is really the, the intersection and the answer to, to all these loves and hopefully these gifts. And I want to tie that quote in with a short quote from Paul Cudd, our German teacher, who talks about how he, as a Macaulay teacher, is an advocate for his students. So, Paul, if I walk into your German class, your German 1 class, I don't speak any German. How, how are you going to help me know enough or learn enough? What, how, what does that look like in your class? Uh, there's, a, there's a fair amount of pantomiming and, and gesturing and so forth to get, to get students to come on board. There's also a lot of panic and fear on the part of the student. Do <laughs> you enjoy uh, that, Paul? I do actually enjoy that. And if you ask my students, they will definitely tell you that I enjoy that. Um, but uh, one of the things that I try to communicate to them very early on is that I'm on your side. I, you know, I really want you to be successful with this. This is something that I'm very passionate about. And that if they just hang in there and stick with it, that they will eventually pick it up and get it. Kenny, when Paul Cudd says, I want you to know, students, I'm on your side, what does that mean at Macaulay? What does that look like? Well, it doesn't mean that the student gets everything he's asking for. But what it means is that that student has a place to go to get help of all kinds beyond just the content area. And we don't have any kind of curve here. We're not trying to make sure a certain number of grades fall in a certain place. If all of our students make A's, that's great. And But the goal is, is even higher than that, that we create an environment where boys know that they're nurtured and loved and that these teachers are there for them even when they make mistakes. And so what that instills in them is this sense of, okay, I'm supported, I can take healthy risks, and there's always hope. Uh, there's always hope, and there's an expert in, my, in, the, in this field that I'm studying in who can help me with all of this and in a context that is very intimate. And, I, and, and one thing I'll add to this, when you listen to Pauline and listen to Will, the one thing that comes up to me is kind of curiosity. Because Paul walks in, he's, he's waving his arms, he's going crazy. It could be intimidating, but they know that he loves them, and it's not. And there's this fine art of not telling the kids everything they need to know so that it creates curiosity. And I think that's the secret sauce of teaching at Macaulay. You know, if you're, if you're doing a, a science experiment and a teacher goes through every single step, it's no fun. So you leave them in a trusted environment uh, giving them just enough where they may actually not do it exactly right, but they're not afraid of that, and there's there's not this fear of failure. So, so to hear Paul say that ties very closely what what Will said, and that and that again, it's not just the content; it is how we use the content. And Sumner, there's a lot of support at Macaulay, a lot of flexibility at Macaulay. What are several of the structures of support that we have, to making sure that all of our students can be at their very best and thrive and succeed here. Yeah, There are definite structures. The first piece of that is that relationship that Kenny's talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. If, if you want to actually have these students connect in class and feel good, you have to challenge them. It, it's not just about getting it to be simple. right? They, they recognize the world is complex and they need to be ready for it. And so the first step is, in fact, forming that relationship, um, which allows them to then say, oh, okay, so now I'm... I'm I'm having to struggle. I'm trying. I'm having to do something that I, I'm not sure about. I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable. Now, where do I go? Well, the first thing you do is you go to the teacher. And so we have a system where teachers have free periods, students have free periods. Sometimes those overlap. That's the first step. But we also have all sorts of other methods. We have a learning center. The entire second floor of the academic building is the learning center, and guys can come in. No appointment needed. No expectation of anything except they're going to be people who get that I'm in a class that I want some help with. They can come in and say, I don't understand anything. And academic counselors who are specialists who really do get both our curriculum, they get individual teaching styles, they get what's going on with our school. Teachers trust them, that's important. It's not vying for who gets to teach the student. And so there's a collective sense of folks can sit down and say, okay, let's look at this. Frequently, 
it's about the specific topic. It's about a particular curricular piece that they're, they're struggling with. And so we can figure out polyatomics. We can figure out something in physics. We can figure out you know, a way to write an English paper. But a lot of times it's about the study skill that the student hasn't ever necessarily had to develop because they were really good at auditory learning. They've been in a system where they could get by by listening in class, by picking up on cues, and they didn't really have to write notes down. Or maybe they're really good at note-taking, but they've never been in a class that's been a discussion-based class where you actually can't take notes in the same way. It's not linear in the same way. And so those specialists being able to sit down with them and say, here are some suggestions I might have with you for you. Here are ways you can use your time effectively. Sometimes it's not the note-taking or the, the, the learning process within a class. It's the outside the class. They don't know how to, how to manage all the things that they have an opportunity to do here at Macaulay. And it's important to, for them to say, okay, I can be more efficient here. And sometimes it's also someone saying to them, you don't need to be more efficient. Take the time. I, mean, I was talking with a student this morning, and he was struggling with the amount of, of things he has to do. And he was saying, well, I can give up that 30 minutes. I can, I can make sure that I go to dinner and only have 20 minutes to dinner and I can move on. And the support he needed wasn't that. It was, no, you need to take the 45 minutes between dinner and study hall. Relax. Find your friend. That's the mental health piece. Now let's think about during study hall how we can use that time more effectively because there are ways to do that. So the sport is both formal in terms of having free periods and having you know, the learning center, having back work or a school that, that takes two or three times in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, other schools think we're nuts. You have that many guys kind of out and about. Yes, because if you put it there, then every single athlete, every single musician, every single person who needs extra sleep can still make it to your back work. You know, speaking of back work, I was meeting this morning with our student council, and one of the questions I asked for them is, what would you like to improve change about Macaulay? And one of the first things that came up was, hey, could we have another back work period? Right. Yeah, I believe well, that. Another concept that surfaced in the podcast was that of citizenship of responsible citizenship, of global citizenship. Let's listen to clips from two of our senior faculty members on this topic. First, we'll hear from Frank Paco Watkins as he talks about how some concepts of global citizenship are sometimes uncomfortable to our students. And that's followed by Michael Lowry, chair of our science department, who talks about how he stresses not just science, but citizenship and kindness. It's scary stuff. I, I, I covered a class for a colleague just yesterday, and... Um, they had not yet gotten their Hispanicized names, um, and a lot of the students have biblical names, so they uh, or, you know, or or names that are um, uh, Latin in, in, in coming from the Bible, and so they transfer translate pretty readily into Spanish. But this class had not done that yet, and so I was going and I was giving them some of the students. I mean, it, it, it were very, very, very scared, uh, very unwilling, very uh, put off by their name being messed with. And so it made me realize, you know, for, this, is very, this is very scary stuff for some of our students. You know, putting well, the on... The reason a, why it's scary is because if you're looking, if you're asking them to, to reflect on culture, you're really asking them to look at themselves in a very different ultimately, way. Ultimately, yes. I think initially they just haven't had experiences with difference um, or the, the, the possibility that their name has another, you know, way of being, you know, put out in the world. And so it reminded me it's just how far we as the, as, as the instructors have to go sometimes to meet a student where he is mm. and, and, you know, help him move forward in terms of, you know, trying out something that seems different, may seem odd or scary, and try it out. Just just be okay with trying it out for a while. Put Alex on the back burner just for the next 10 seconds and try Alejandro. And, you know, I'm not asking you to like Alejandro, but try it out. That's threatening to some people. We want to equip these boys so they do have the knowledge, skills, the attitudes, right, to actually solve these problems that you know, our species have created. And science will play a large role in that, but not an exclusive role. I'll cycle back to my colleague, Kemmer Anderson. He has this great phrase. He's our poet laureate, right? So we're going to have to lean on, on poetry, too, <laughs> to help us get through this in 50 years. But he has this great quote. He says, you begin your teaching career because you love your discipline. 
And he says, you remain a teacher because you love your students. And here I am three decades into it, and I'm only now beginning, he's right. <laughs> that early version of me were like, what are you talking about, camera? What's all that warm and fuzzy BS, right? <laughs> and it's like, he's right. He's absolutely right. Um, I look into their faces, I see their future, and I see a lot of brightness in their future. But I'm also, you know, trained enough as a scientist to know it's not going to be easy. It's just not, you know. And, and I'm not going to, you know, hide the, the truth from them either. But it is their future, and we'll walk to it together. And even though I can sort of extrapolate into a future, none of us really know what, what it's going to be like, which is part of the fun, I guess. Well, and that's, that's the, the excitement and the joy, I think, particularly in science, because mm -hmm. there is the chance to, to create and find dramatic changes. Yes. It's not just interpretation of, and, and that, that's true with history, that's true with English, it's true with a number of disciplines where there's a narrative, they're thinking about it, I mean, those are important. But one of the things that you all are helping these young men do is realize that they can make a huge difference in what they produce, in what they create, in what they innovate, in what they think about, and can actually turn back um, a lot of the pressures that we're seeing that we're creating a yeah, society ourselves. Yeah, I think that's true, you know, and, and giving them room to do that sort of good practice, kind of in a sandbox. That's right. At our best, that's what we're doing, right? We're training citizens, um, active citizens, not just passive folks who, who expect a certain number of rights, right? correct? But someone who's willing to roll up their sleeve and maybe give up a little bit, you know, and, and, and chip in, right? And then the other thing, you know, another question you had, I remember being a Fulbrighter in Japan, written into their curriculum, Sumner, is this idea is they want, they want their citizens to become kind, which I thought was so interesting. That's one of their national objectives with their citizenry is to become kind to each other. And that was like alien to this American, <laughs> which is like, what? How do you like do that? There's this one reform, you know, and he was, he's somewhat successful, I guess. His goal was to create kind kids. You know, he created a curriculum of kindness. And that was just really interesting to me. You know, those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about, too. It's like, how do I do that as a science educator? You know, the contours of what citizenship means, I think that's really expanded in the last decade or two. And Sumner and Kenny, as we think about citizenship at Macaulay and the students that we're serving and how interconnected the, or the global community is, Kenny, how do you see the best form of citizenship uh, being put forward at Macaulay? I think both of these men alluded to it, but I think it starts with being able to make these boys uncomfortable in an environment in which they are comfortable. They're, they're very comfortable here. They love the place. So we, we have to, to make them uncomfortable. We call that wrestling with angels so that they'll begin to think beyond just their own comfort level. And I've used comfort a lot, but it really is it, it really is what we're talking about and to start thinking of the the bigger picture and then taking those concepts and those ideas and dialing it down to each individual boy and how his gifts talents might contribute to the the greater good because one of the things boys need we know this is that they need to know that their contribution means something and that's one of the things you're really good at here is putting them in a situation where others are relying on them. And it may be, may be relatively trivial now. It may be helping build the potato gun for Neil Dexter's, uh, you know, class when he talks about the, uh, the equation of a parabola. But, but, it, but it then lends itself as, as they mature and other things come their way. That, thing, that same process is there that they learned way back as 10th graders or 9th graders in physics. So I do think it's, it's, it's relevant. I think here it is intentional, and we can do that because these kids know these teachers love them and know them so well. I like the phrase, get uncomfortable in a place where they are comfortable. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of the, the balance we try to strike here at Macaulay between being a school of tradition and innovation. Right. And we're rooted in our mission and our founding values, our enduring foundational commitments. And yet we're also committed to being having a growth mindset as an institution and recognizing we're serving boys from about 20 countries from around the world and over 25 states. And, and the world's different. Um, and so we try to strike that balance. And Sumner, as you think about that, what are some things that happen programmatically and in the curriculum 
that promotes this citizenship and recognizes, hey, who we serve and the world the boys are entering, it's different than it was a generation or two before. Yeah, definitely. A, a quick, easy example is what we've done with the U.S. history curriculum. So it's, I think for a while, for a long time, it was sort of a march through precedence, right? Here's material, here's content, and we're going to cover. And as Kenny noted, sort of that gets longer and longer, mm-hmm. so it's harder to sort of fit it all in. But in particular, it was we're going to know this time period, and we're going to know this other thing, and we're going to know the next piece, and then we're going to move this era. And what we found is a lot of the guys, they might know the material pretty well, but what do they do with that? It, does, it doesn't resonate it doesn't, it doesn't cause them to be able to necessarily look at the world unless you talk about the problem solving and the, the, the themes that come from that. So about five years ago, we actually changed that curriculum. And so between August and October, um, the U.S. history teachers create a framework. You have to have some type of scaffolding for the guys to learn. And so there's a framework, and they cover from indigenous folks that were here before up through 2000, 2016 even. And then they go back and look at themes, and they go back and look at civil rights issues. And they go back and look at um, immigration. And they go back and look at sort of how, are we, how do we see ourselves in the world. And they can pick up across those themes, because they already have the scaffolding, they can pick up how they relate to each of these periods. And in particular, they can start with something now and go backwards and see where we've come from. That's much more relevant. And what it helps the guys do is realize this isn't a game. Right. I, th- I think some of us maybe going through school, you sort of talked about how do you learn to play the game and you kind of figure out high school and there's particularly the academic game. It's not a game at Macaulay. These are folks that are going to make decisions in the future and they're going to make choices about how to listen and how to lead and how to think morally and how to address the challenges that we have. And those are going to be directly relevant to how we survive, to how we actually live on a daily basis. Um, and, and so that that citizenship piece, that sort of sense of a larger world is something we can do within the curriculum. We've also added a number of different courses that try and express voices that may not have been heard before. That's really valuable. Or we we added an entire sort of graphic design piece because there was a clear sense of these guys needing to be able to engage in the world and, and share their voice in that particular method. And we didn't have them be able to do that before. Summer, you talked a good bit about history. And I want to play a clip from two of our history teachers, Bart Wallen and Duke Ritchie, talking about the concept of citizenship in public debate. And my ideas are still growing and changing, and I don't need my students to not only think like me, I don't, I don't need them to think like whatever I perceive they should think like. I need them to engage in the process of thinking. So what that means is you walk in and you say, you set some ground rules. Here's some things that we're going to engage in. Here's some things that are helpful. Here's some things that aren't helpful. But the most helpful thing that you can do, student, is be willing to sit with something. Just sit with it a little while. And if you do that over and over and over again, as I told our sixth graders yesterday about coming into this Macaulay Brotherhood, if you do that, you're just stacking good interactions on top of good interactions on top of good interactions. And if you're stacking, if you're stacking good thinking on top of good thinking on top of good thinking. I don't know when the end result will come, but I believe that you will get to a place where you are comfortable making informed decisions. Nobody ever changed their mind, certainly not a 12 or 13 or 14 year old, by somebody just telling them. Instead, they have to be allowed to make some decisions. You expose them, you lead them on a path, and you say, you don't have to end up where I do, but I think that the value of you engaging with tough material is worth it no matter where you end up. And also listening to what other kids from these 40 different elementary schools or whatever it is, typically in the middle school, bring to the table. I mean, you know, the, the, the diversity of backgrounds and opinion, I mean, the, the general world might not necessarily understand or appreciate this about Macaulay School, but we have a lot of kids from a lot of different places and backgrounds. And I've seen, even in all the election years I've taught through, um, I have, and part of it's because all of us do a good job throughout the progression of setting ground rules so that by the time they get to my class, they know the ground rules. They know, and it's in my syllabus too, and we go over it. But, you know, that we're going to treat each other with respect. We're going to listen. And that's hugely important is that you, you consider the opinion of someone you might vehemently disagree with. You know, I think in schools today and society, it's so fast-paced and busy that 
sometimes we don't have time to sit with something for a while and reflect upon it. And Bart talked about the importance of we want to give them time to really to just let something the material just soak in and the, for them to think about it. And, and at Macaulay, we're not t- telling them what to think, but we want to make sure they think uh, critically about all kinds of uh, topics and creatively and so forth. But that's it takes time for them to do that. And Sumner, what are some of the ways in which we give our students that space to do that? Yeah, it's incredibly important. And a lot of it is the way in which the teacher frames discussions to begin with. The, the best example, a number of years in an ethics course I taught, medical ethics course, I would want to get guys engaged. And so I would ask them the question and they would have them stand up. Guys need to stand up and move around and do things. I would have them stand up and actually spread themselves out on a spectrum from agree to disagree. And they would be standing in the classroom and they would talk about whatever the issue was, maybe physician-assisted uh, suicide, so ending, ending, uh, helping an individual into life. That's a really divisive issue. That's, that's something that's really deeply emotional. And I would want them to be engaged. And what I realized was happening in these classes is, yes, we were learning material, but they would simply, it drove them further and further into their own opinion because I had structured it that way. As opposed to instead, this year, for instance, changing and saying, not the spectrum, but why might this be a really challenging issue that a society might run into? I'm going to get the same conversation. I'm going to get the same details, but just that slight phrase of difference. Um, or to say to them, the consensus, we need to develop a consensus around the best policy for this. And if you do that in issues that are incredibly challenging, it gives them the space to think because they're not having to try and formulate their own opinion very quickly and then argue it. They get to listen to someone else. They then talk about that person's idea. Another way you can do it in a class is to say, half the things you say have to be questions. Right? And it forces them to maybe say something, but then they have to, they have to turn to the next person. So I think you can do it in terms of classes. You have classes that also involve a lot of mindfulness. You have classes that involve a lot of reading, a lot of pausing before you ask questions. Um, they're thinking it's a good bit of writing the class outside that's coming back in. So there are a lot of different ways to get at that reflection process. And we talk a lot with our students about listening well, about being respectful of others, learning from each other. In our society today, of course, there's such mm-hmm. uh, the civil discourse can be so rancorous and contentious and disrespectful and and yet we're you know, building a Macaulay community of brotherhood and community. And can you talk about some of the ways in which we're able to um, develop this sense of brotherhood despite the, you know, the differences um, and diversity that we have within the community? Before I answer that specifically, I'm reminded of something my father used to tell me all the time once I found my way to the ridge and, and decided I was going to spend my adult life here essentially. Uh, he was a working man and, uh, you know, dealt with cars a lot. And he used to say to me, and he, this, I'll say it the way he said it to me, boy, you don't live in a real world over there. And, uh, and in some ways I, I thought, well, you're right. I, I don't because it's a, it's a wonderful community that people get along with each other, they have a, but they have a common purpose. And it's that common purpose that drives all of us. So I think – that's the foundation of brotherhood is this common person that we have. And, and there's, a, there's a phrase that I, I read in an old Reader's Digest uh, condensed version story many years ago, and it's the term specific gravity. And if you apply it to culture, it's often kind of a negative. But here, this, this culture has such an incredible specific gravity that we come here with our differences, but, but we are re- we're very much influenced by this culture, which is one of common purpose and brotherhood and mutual respect. And it's real, and it, and it happens day in and day out. And so, yes, my father, who passed away several years ago, he was right. I, 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 I don't live in the real world, but I live in a world where we are preparing boys for it by driving home these foundational principles and habits of mind and, and, and their hearts to prepare them. And I do believe that, that when, as these boys matriculate, uh, my hope and my, uh, my money is on them, so to speak. I think they're going to make the world better. I really do. And one of the great men who for many, many years at Macaulay has propelled our boys on into manhood is Bill Jamison, who teaches eighth-grade English uh, now. And he alumni remember the great passion and love of teaching. And I'll play a clip from him um, how he talks about the nuances of teaching adolescent boys. Eighth grade is exceedingly hard to choose books for. 
I have a bias against young adult literature because it just seems to be checking boxes on certain things and it's it's just a little simple especially in an independent school in an eighth grade where I'm sending kids to ninth grade where the books are real and the books are big and bad and so uh, I've tried really hard to, to change the books around each year and and I have minor minor success with that but frankly like To Kill a Mockingbird still works with them and old little small William Saroyan book The Human Comedy really works with eighth grade boys even Romeo and Juliet works with eighth grade boys they they like the fact that they've conquered it they they kind of like the love story and all of that it's better they, they like it better than Julius Caesar for sure but the most popular book in the last six years, I took a chance on Neil Simon's Brighton Beach Memoirs. And uh, it's, it's got some really funny parts. Uh, and the, Eugene, the, the main character, is a, a very typical teenager who thinks very typical teenage thoughts, all of which are not all that. You wouldn't hear them in Sunday school, let's put it that way. But the book, the play, is about family. And it's a, I mean, I told somebody, it is a family values play with some cuss words. Mm -hmm. and, and it's about this, this dysfunctional family that loves each other so much that the end, they, they're a mess until the end and they get them at their act together and, and even begin to welcome over the ones that have escaped Nazi Germany. And, I, and I've only had one Parent over all those six years complain about the language and uh, I just kind of brushed it off to be honest with you because I have too many boys at the end say that was my favorite play because it was because those people were real you know it's the and I think that's part of it the, the issues were real the family was real and, and the other thing was the the teenage boy that is, is a little bit loose with his thoughts and his language He's the most immature in the whole book. He's not the hero. And, and the and eighth grade boys recognize that. He's there and he stays immature whereas everybody else grows. And it's a little bit of a, a commentary on, on the boys themselves. It's like if we keep acting goofy like this, we're no better than he is. It was fun hearing Bill talk about Brighton Beach Memoirs as a Macaulay student. My parents took me to see that play in New York. And I love that play, and I see why you know, Macaulay boys really appreciate that, why it resonates with them. And what we try to do here is we're trying to develop a curriculum and pedagogy and programs that are boy-specific, and boys learn and develop in unique ways. And Sumner and Kenny, I want to talk a little bit about what are some of those ways in which our boys learn and what gets them excited and engaged with learning so they can be their very best and full and authentic young men. One of the things that stood out, and talking to these teachers during this podcast is that every single one of them was interested in what the boys had to say and how to help shape that voice to be a bit, a bit more efficient, a bit smarter, a bit more direct, but not change the core concept of it. And I think that's really critical for these young men to feel like what they have to say matters to the people that are around them. And if you can do that and then they realize that that matters, they, they then need to be better, sharper and, 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 it is going to make a difference. That's that's interesting. That's one way to do it. Yeah, I, I certainly agree, Sumner. And I, I think I think the other thing that's so powerful here is the teachers are so authentic with the boys. They're not, you know, they're not in an ivory tower. They're not the source of all knowledge. They're they are they are real people as well, and some days better prepared than others, as as we all would be. And I, I'm reminded of. Um, we had a faculty or a department meeting when I was still teaching math, and uh, the the theme of the meeting was it's okay to let your students see you get lost on a problem. Well, I at that point in my career I had a perfect record because I made sure I did every problem the night before, and uh, so I got behind. It was soon after that I got behind, and there was one problem at the end. This was honors geometry, of course, that I love teaching, and there was one problem that it was late at night. I had dorm duty, and I said, okay, I'm not going to work that one tonight, and I'll just make sure we don't get to it. And naturally, some guy in the back of the class the next day said, hey, uh, coach, how about doing number whatever it was, 27? I had no idea. I mean, I really had no idea how to do it. So I took forever drawing this thing up. 
And they knew I didn't have an idea, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't as authentic as I should have been. Anyway, point being, uh, finally some kid in the class says, well, I think, I think, wouldn't you do that by, uh, by uh, similar triangles? And it clicked, you know, and then I said, well, why don't you go up here and do it? And so it worked out very well. So a lot happened there. One, as we've talked about before, um, what he did really mattered because the kids learned how to do the problem. And secondly, the boys saw me uh, in, a, in a vulnerable way that, that I hadn't let them see me before. Um, so I think that's it's it's finding these real people who are experts in their field who have this wonderful idea of the continuum of content and boy and heart and and appropriateness, and it's just a lot of fun. And I think the classrooms at Macaulay, uh, visitors are sometimes surprised by the fact that they're they're noisy. They're right. messy. Students are up, moving around. I mean, boys learn in the best in a setting like that. And if we That's had right. classrooms where we said, okay, just be quiet and sit still and take notes and regurgitate information, that'd drive boys crazy. Well, I mean, there's a little bit of that in Macaulay. There, there needs to be some of that. But it's a very different classroom that we have here. And, Kenny, when you're talking about your classroom in geometry, I'm reminded of the story I love you telling, maybe you can tell it briefly, about the sword of geometry. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was I was late for class, uh, which I should not have been. But uh, and, and as I was running through the quadrangle, uh, there's this little limb laying, laying right in the middle of the quadrangle from one of the crepe myrtles there in the, in the quadrangle. And I, I realized that a limb at a boys' school that anyone can pick up is not a good thing. So I pick up this limb and I start breaking it apart as I'm headed for class. I'm throwing the smaller pieces of, I hope, less <laughs> dangerous limb, uh, you know, right and left. And as I walk into class, I have a piece of it left just about – I don't know, two feet long, I guess, a little stick. And uh, probably the same kid who knew I didn't know how to do the problem that day said, uh, hey, uh, Coach, what's your plan for that stick? You know, the, the, saying it in a way where had that edge to it. I had no idea. And I said, hey, this is the sword of geometry. The best guy gets the stick. And I kid you not, those knuckleheads fought for that stick every day. I mean, some of the guys who hadn't done anything were working their way up to get to take that stick home, and I, it still hangs in my office today And for a lot of reasons. One of them is it doesn't take much, and two, just make it tangible. Uh, you know, just have something tangible there so they're not working in a vacuum. Macaulay really does that well. I happened on to it. Now it, Sumner has them do it much more intentionally. I really enjoyed this discussion. As we wrap it up, um, let's talk about the challenges we detected in these podcasts. Uh, so some, for instance, I saw that you know, some departments have a lot of coordination, teachers visiting each other's classes, exchanging ideas, asking for advice, while others seem to stress more individual approaches. What are your thoughts on how, as a faculty and staff, we work together and grow? I think the key there is for each teacher to understand deeply what she or he is trying to do in their specific classroom and then how that relates to the larger school. We did this, in fact, when we were talking about habits of mind. We started with, what are my essential questions in my classroom? And if people are very clear on that, and then the next step is, what what am I doing with this class? What does algebra 2 really do for a student? It's more than just teaching the, the parametric equations and, and conic sections. It's There's a thought process that happens when a student moves from geometry to pre-cal, and algebra 2 is that step. So what, do I, what am I trying to do with those specific students? So I think the key there for faculty is to be very clear on what I'm trying to do, and then... And we have all sorts of mechanisms to do this. We have faculty groups that meet on a regular basis that involve people from all departments, from all disciplines, uh, from all divisions, and to, to pose questions that cause them to say, this is what we're trying to do as a school. Um, that's, so that's one of the w- ways to do it. I, I, I want to make sure that each department gets to sort of say, this is the type of way we look at the world. These are certain things that science asks that English doesn't. One is not better than the other. And the only way to understand the world is by asking all of those questions. Um, from across the departments. And so that's one way to do that is to, is to allow the flexibility and the freedom internally and then the understanding coordination sort of externally. You know, I'm amazed at all the, just the, the infrastructure and the thoughtful design that goes into what happens, how we uh, develop programs and teaching and learning experiences for the Macaulay boys. And, and they and parents and others would have no idea probably of all that goes underneath it. And it reminds me of when I was a little boy, I was at uh, Space Mountain at Disney World, the, the great roller coaster that's in the dark. And so you just go on this fabulous ride and, and so forth. But then at one point when I was waiting in line, the lights all turned on. There's some kind of mechanical issue. I could see this vast uh, infrastructure of, I mean, all these 
this metal uh, metal structures and, and all this all these mm-hmm. tracks and all this stuff yeah. underneath it that you'd have no idea was there because you're just enjoying this great beautiful ride. And I think the Macaulay experience in some way is like that. These boys are getting this remarkable experience, but it takes this tremendous amount of planning and energy and design and thought um, behind it all. And uh, Kenny, you've been a part of that in, in so many ways throughout your career at Macaulay. So what's your, what's your sense of just the, the infrastructure that undergirds Macaulay? Well, I think Macaulay is, um, I sort of alluded to it, you know, there are things that we set aside that we do formally. I mean, we have to do that, meetings and such. But um, those are really, they only, they only touch the surface. The, the, the key to it is to, to have what, I, I, I've said so many things about the Macaulay culture, but it is, it is a very efficient as-you-go culture as well. In other words, uh, with all of the things that are, that are formally in place, the teachers also do a wonderful job of just you know, sharing ideas at lunch and things like that. But uh, the key to it is to think about the boy's day from the time he wakes up until the time he, if he's a boarding student, turns out that light. What does that day look like? And I remember we were in a meeting. uh, It was Sumner and a group of us in a meeting. We were looking at boys who were struggling. And uh, this one boy, just behind by this, this, this kind of randomness of it all, had this interesting slate of courses and teachers who had varying and pretty high expectations of workload. And, and then he went on to his afternoon activity. It was the same. And then his dorm had a very kind of structure that probably was good for him, but it, it, was, it was more rigid. And I think Hank Hopping said, wow, man, I'd hate to be that kid. And so it wasn't because he wasn't working with nice people. It was because he was, there was just no break in that. It was the same thing. over. So we changed his schedule around to try to balance that. So it starts with knowing these boys really well, visualizing what they have to do, and then having a nimble system in place that meets that boy's need. And the North Star question that we come back to over and over again is what's best Absolutely. for the boy. That's right. It's not what's best for us as adults or society or so forth. What's best for the boys of Macaulay? I think that's guided us well for 117 years. It's been a great conversation. Kenny Sumner, thanks for all that you do. And thanks for those of you tuned in to this edition of Stories from the Ridge. You have been listening to Stories from the Ridge, a podcast series from Macaulay School. Stories from the Ridge is produced by Macaulay's Communications Department. If you have any comments or if you have a suggestion for a future podcast, please let us know by sending an email at info at macaulay.org. That's info at m-c-c-a-l-l-i-e dot org. Or call us at 423-493-5615. I'm Brandon Roberts with Macaulay's Communication Department. Thank you for listening.